Good morning, welcome. Thanks, Bob, for doing so much this morning at the last minute. Uh, he's a good elder. The New Testament says you're supposed to praise hardworking elders. He's a good, hardworking elder. You should thank him afterwards. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, we are at verse 21. If you're new to the Bible, big numbers we call chapters, little numbers we call verses. Matthew is toward the end of the whole Bible. It's the beginning of what we call the New Testament, the first of four accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us uh, as painful and as uh, convicting as it might be. We all struggle with these things that Jesus speaks of here. And so we ask for the humility to hear it and to receive it for ourselves as much as we might want to uh, receive it or beat it over other people's heads on their behalf. Help us each to hear it for ourselves and to become a more peaceful and joyful and kind people. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I'll start with two quotes about anger. First one, theologian named Frederick Buechner says this, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. Here's the second one. A counselor named David Powelson wrote a great book about anger. The second chapter is called, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? And I'll read you the whole chapter. Yes. That's the whole chapter. <laughs> anger is in many ways fun, and because it's fun, because we all love to indulge it, uh, and when this love for our anger combines with a constant love for my own interests, anger then also becomes enormously destructive, not only to other people, but also to me. Jesus is warning us. Jesus is warning us about our anger. Is he doing this because he's a killjoy? Because he wants to ruin our lives? No, of course not. Like a good doctor who tells us that something is seriously wrong and demands immediate and serious change, Jesus is telling us this because he's good because he's wise, 
Because our anger, while sometimes is warranted, sometimes it's even a good thing, because our anger is usually destructive, even eternally so. Uh, This, like many parts of Jesus' ministry, like many parts of his teaching, is shocking. It's meant to make us feel the urgency of dealing with our anger. First way that this teaching does this here is by Jesus helping us to face the reality of our anger. What is it, really? And second here, Jesus helps us to face the damage of our anger. What is it doing? So first, in his love and his goodness, Jesus wants us to face the true reality of our anger. You see that in verses 21 and 22 there. Uh, In our passage that we looked at last week, just before this, in Matthew 5, we saw Jesus introducing his commands in the Sermon on the Mount by making it very clear that he is teaching and acting with perfect continuity with the Old Testament scriptures of Israel. Jesus said there that even though something very radical, something revolutionary has come now with the arrival of his kingdom, uh, at the same time, not even one part of one letter from Israel's scriptures would lose any of their significance for his disciples or for the world. He said there that he did not come to demolish the Old Testament. He said that he came to fulfill it. We said that mainly means that all of it is about him, even if that sometimes means that we don't apply it today in the same way that the Israelites applied it back then. And so now that Jesus has introduced his posture toward these scriptures and his relationship to them, for the rest of Matthew chapter 5 now, Jesus is going to be elaborating on uh, various aspects of the ethics that are laid out there in God's law. Uh, Again, not by overturning them, not by rejecting them, but rather Jesus does it by interpreting them appropriately. Jesus clarifies them for us. Jesus deepens them for us. In verse 21 beginning of our passage, he starts with the sixth of the Ten Commandments that Israel heard God speaking from the top of Mount Sinai way back when they came out of Egypt. Jesus says, you've heard it said that to those of old, you shall not murder. That's the commandment itself. And then he goes on, he says, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And Jesus here is referring to various Old Testament laws that specified how to apply the sixth commandment in a legal setting. So Jesus is basically just saying, here's what we've all been told about murder. But now look at verse 22. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. We'll come back in a little bit to anger and to its judgment in a bit. But first I want you to see the very strongly emphatic way that Jesus inserts himself here. God spoke to our ancestors from the top of Mount Sinai, don't murder, but I'm saying to you, and this is in the original Greek, this is a really emphatic way to put it, Jesus is saying, I'm saying something else. Now remember, Jesus is not saying that he's rejecting the command against murder. That's obvious to all of us. Jesus is not saying, you've been told not to murder, and I'm telling you, go out and murder. Jesus is saying that he has the authority to speak on behalf of God himself, 
something that no one in their right mind in the first century, uh, no scribe, no rabbi, would have ever claimed for themselves. It's only a few words, but it's an enormously significant statement of how Jesus understood himself. Jesus understood himself to be teaching and speaking on the same level as God himself. Jesus is centering God's communication. He's centering the proper interpretation of that communication in himself. He's leaving us no room to do uh, what a lot of people like to do with Jesus, to politely dismiss him, to pat him on the head a little bit and say, oh, here's some prophet, some teacher who said some interesting things uh, describing for us his experience of God a couple thousand years ago. Jesus is leaving us no room to treat him like that. Jesus is saying that if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God says, you have to come to me and me alone. Who says that kind of thing? Imagine if somebody came up to you on the street today and was talking like that. It's almost absurd. So Jesus is speaking as God's Messiah. He's speaking as the uniquely authoritative interpreter of God's standard for humanity. He's saying, I say to you. Not only that murder itself is liable to judgment, of course, but also Jesus says that being angry is liable to judgment. Here and in the next couple of verses, verses, Jesus is using the language of being angry with a brother. In the Gospel of Matthew and most of the rest of the time in the New Testament, uh, the word also in Greek means sister. It's a family term. Uh, but in the Gospel of Matthew especially, it's consistently a way of referring to a fellow disciple of Jesus. Later on, they would start being called Christians. It's a, it's a word for other Christians. Uh, in chapter 12, later on in Matthew, Jesus, uh, his family shows up in the middle of him teaching and they say, hey, Jesus, your family's here. They really want to talk to you. And Jesus, maybe somewhat rudely, uh, gestures toward his disciples, and he says, well, whoever does God's will, that's who my brother and sister and mother is. Uh, that's Jesus' real family, he's saying. So Jesus here is primarily, in these first couple of verses, he's primarily thinking of one of his disciples being angry with another one of his disciples, with Christians getting mad at each other. Uh, but we're going to see in the last couple of verses of this paragraph uh, that everything Jesus is saying right here applies also to anger and conflict with anybody, no matter what they believe about Jesus. Jesus gives two parallel statements after this about anger and judgment, three total. Uh, they're all more or less, I think, saying the same thing. He says, if you insult your brother, you will be liable to the council, which today uh, we would say the Supreme Court. And then he says, if you call your brother an idiot, using a word there that insults somebody's intelligence. The first, one, uh, insults, yeah, the first one insults their intelligence. The second one here, the fool, insults their uh, morality. Today we would say they are a scoundrel or a villain or maybe some other colorful term that would make parents mad if I used it in a sermon. Um, the point Jesus is saying is, you know, there's various ways of insulting people. It's not just kind of, oh, I got kind of wound up, I got kind of mad. Jesus even says showing contempt towards people. Uh, whether it's in terms of their intelligence, in terms of uh, how much integrity they have. And as he goes, as he kind of talks about these different ways of being angry with somebody, he's also ramping up the judgment language. Uh, he ends with the name of a valley next to Jerusalem, the, the, the Hinnom Valley. In Hebrew, it's Gehinnom, Gehenna. Uh, but because of its history, because of its nature, because of its associations, by the time of Jesus, 
this valley had become, uh, the name of the valley became a euphemism for hell itself. And so Jesus is not saying, we have to understand this, Jesus is not saying that all anger is wrong. Jesus himself got angry, sometimes very angry. Later on in Matthew, Jesus will even use the same exact word, fool. He says, you know, be careful you don't call people fools. Later on in Matthew, he's going to call the Pharisees fools. He's going to use the same exact word. Uh, So Jesus is not, I don't think, saying all anger is wrong, all anger is bad. God himself is angry about evil and injustice. Uh, And the Bible is clear that that's a good thing. That's good news, that God is angry about evil and God's going to do something about it. Uh, The Bible is even clear that uh, even our own anger about evil and injustice is a good thing. It's a reflection of us being made in God's image. Sometimes it's a sin not to be angry. But qualifications aside, uh, sometimes when you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, you want to qualify it so much that you end up missing what it's actually saying. The main point here, the main emphasis is Jesus warning us. Jesus warning us about our anger. And we we can't hide behind lots of qualifications when we hear that. In our egotistical love for our own status and power and control, the reality is that our anger is so often not driven by genuine concern for injustice, that's what it should be, that's what God's anger is, but rather the reality is that most of the time my anger is driven by the same hateful and selfish impulses that lead to murder itself. That's Jesus' main point. That's Jesus' real warning for us today. And one of the things that Jesus does over and over in the Sermon on the Mount is to confront and correct various ways that people try to wriggle out from underneath the weight of God's commands, uh, the ways that people try to uh, escape from uh, God's moral standards by making excuses for ourselves and our circumstances, uh, while, of course, all of us like to turn around and use the same standards to bludgeon other people. And so part of what is going on here is Jesus saying this, just because you've never actually murdered anybody does not mean that the sixth commandment has nothing to say to you. Actually, the sixth commandment, he says, is first and foremost about your posture toward other people and toward their well-being. A lot of people say, well, of course I'm going to heaven, of course God likes me, of course God accepts me, I'm not a murderer, I'm not Hitler, I mean pretty well. But Jesus says, stop right there. He says, your spite, your bitterness, your grudges, your envy, your pity parties, all those things, all those things that we feed every day, all those things that politicians promote every few years to get people to run out and vote for them, all these things that social media amplify in our lives, all of them, Jesus says, are coming from the same place in the heart that murder does. They're not really any different at the end of the day. Uh, on the, if you got one of the paper bulletins by the door, on the back of it, I put for you a couple of Q&As from what's called a catechism. Our church uh, holds to a certain catechism called the Westminster Catechism, the Longer Catechism. We think it's a really good summary of what the Bible teaches. One of my favorite parts of it is when it goes through the Ten Commandments, and it shows all these different ways that the Ten Commandments apply to our lives. And so I gave you the two questions about the murder commandment. Uh, I think it has a lot of really insightful applications of this command. I'd encourage you to take it and reflect on it later today uh, about 
what that command not only forbids, don't do this, but also what it requires. Here's what you should do instead. Uh, you'll see as you read through that, I think it's wonderful, very convicting, you'll see that anger is not just yelling. Anger is not just kicking chairs across the room. Uh, anger shows up in all kinds of other ways. Uh, I didn't think I was a very angry person until I had kids and I realized how irritated I could get and how frustrated I could get. Uh, I'm not a real emotional person. I don't get real loud, but I get very irritated. And I've had to learn that that too is a very serious form of anger. Whatever it looks like, Jesus is deadly serious about our anger. He says that envy and hatred and bitterness and disdain and contempt and coldness, all these ways that anger manifests in our lives, Jesus is deadly serious about it. He says all of it can and does send people to the fires of hell. He is so serious about anger that he warns us about hell. There's nobody in the Bible who speaks more often or more intensely about God's wrath as Jesus. One scholar puts it this way, reflecting on this passage. Few words introduce us as effectively to the need for salvation by grace as Jesus' words of damnation by anger. Indeed, later on, we'll hear Jesus describing hell as a place of gnashing teeth, people grinding their teeth. That's probably an image of anger. Jesus is telling us not only that anger leads you to hell, but that hell itself is an angry place. One of the most haunting things about C.S. Lewis's book um, called The Great Divorce, if you've ever read it, it's pretty good. Um, he describes hell there. He kind of imagines what hell is like. One of the most haunting things about it is how angry and bitter everybody is there. You see the same thing if you've ever read Dante's Inferno. All the excuses people are making, all the blame shifting, all of the anger. Jesus is showing us here the true reality of our murderous hearts. He's warning us about where our anger can lead us, even to hell. He's doing it because he loves us. Jesus is the friend of sinners. We rightly are amazed that Jesus would surround himself purposefully with people whom the world is casting aside. But it's because he's the friend of sinners that Jesus also speaks about the dangers of hell. So that's the reality of anger. But now in verse 23, he turns to help us face the damage of our anger. First, Jesus talks about conflict with another disciple, and then like we said, in verse 25, he starts talking about conflict more broadly with anybody who might be your accuser, he says. But in both cases, the basic points about what to do are the same. Jesus has already told us in the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he already told us that peacemakers are blessed. Peacemakers are enjoying God's favor, Jesus says, because they will be called the children of God. And so here he says that dealing with anger and conflict is so important it is so important that dealing with it should interrupt duties to God, duties like corporate worship. One of the most common themes throughout the entire Bible, the Old and the New Testaments, one of the most common themes is that the way that you show that you love the God whom you cannot see 
is by loving the people around you whom you can see, especially other believers. Not only, but especially. The situation that Jesus is describing here, uh, your brother, you know, another disciple of Jesus, they have something against you, and at the same time you are coming to worship God, the same God that both of you claim to believe in, that situation is enormously disjointed. Something is seriously wrong with that picture. How can you claim to love Jesus but be filled with bitterness and envy towards somebody else who also follows him? It's complete and utter hypocrisy. And Jesus is speaking in very broad terms, and this is what makes this so shocking. It makes it so tempting to try to wriggle out from underneath it. Jesus says, if your brother has anything against you, then you should interrupt your worship and go to him or her and do what you can to make peace. And then come back and continue worshiping God. Jesus says, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, this is part of the reason why historically the church has made part of its service a passing of the peace. It's not really a time for kids to scurry off to their class. We don't know where else to have them do it. It's not really even, sometimes I like to think this, sometimes it's not even really a, a way to torture introverts. But it's really an opportunity for Christians to reconcile with each other before they come to the communion table together. That's really what it is. It's a theological statement. Jesus says, if they have anything against you, uh, they might be upset with you or you might be upset with them. Jesus says, either way, the ball is in your court. Either way, the ball is in your court. It's not enough to say, well, I have nothing against them. Uh, that's their problem if they want to do something about it. You can't say, well, they don't get it. They don't understand. You can't say it's their fault. They should be the one to come to me. You can't say they should know how upset I am. Jesus says that dealing with conflict is so important that you have to take the first step no matter how much or how little blame that you think you have. The ball is in your court. Jesus makes a very similar point in verses 25 and 26 about conflict with anybody, not just other Christians. He uses the imagery of the lawsuit to make his points. He says, settle the conflict as soon as you can, even while you're on the way to the courthouse, so to speak. He says, do that lest you fall into an inescapable prison sentence. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, lest you be put in prison. And then Jesus alludes at the end of that again to hell. He reiterates how serious he is. He says, truly I say to you, that's how you know Jesus really wants you to pay attention, is when he says this, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Which in the context of a culture that had debtor's prison, this is a way of Jesus saying, never. You will never get out. Jesus is going to continue to teach on conflict all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the most common themes of all of his teaching. But let me offer a couple of quick side points, and we'll flush this out more in the next couple months. So the first one is that while the initiative always rests with me, no matter what the situation is or who caused it, this initiative is always for me to take. When somebody has offended me, that first step is to attempt to overlook it, to attempt to overlook the offense. One of the Proverbs in the Old Testament says that doing this is a glorious thing. The Apostle Peter says in one of his letters that love covers a multitude of sins. 
And so we should always try, if we can, first step is always try to overlook it. Just let it go. Uh, try to understand that this person, you know, maybe they, they were tired. Uh, maybe their kids were driving them crazy that morning. Uh, try to let it go. Try to overlook it. But we all know that there are many times when you cannot do that. You might try. You might try really hard. You might try very sincerely, but you cannot do it. When you cannot overlook it, and that's okay if you can't, the next step is that you need to go to them, sometimes maybe with help from another person. You need to go talk to that person. They may not respond well. That's a situation we're going to talk about later in Jesus' teachings about forgiveness and also on church discipline. But the main thing is that you do whatever you can to make peace insofar as you can help it. The Apostle Paul says somewhere, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, some of you uh, are tempted to hear what I've been saying, and you are, as you're hearing all this about anger and conflict and bitterness and all these things, uh, you actually are shifting into this mental rehearsal of how bad somebody else is, uh, how they are the one who should be hearing this sermon, how you really hope they're paying attention right now, how unrealistic Jesus is being. This is also simplistic. It's a lot more complicated. You don't understand what's been done to me, what they said to me. But again, Jesus' deadly serious point is that each one of us must take the initiative to make peace in our relationships. Even if in the end, the other person refuses to repent or reconcile. It's clearly a passage meant to sober us. It's meant to expose us, expose our pretensions, expose our excuses. Not somebody else's, but mine. Some of us, like so many people in our world today, some of us here today are consumed with anger, consumed with bitterness, consumed with contempt for other people. And so if you're here this morning, you need to take Jesus' warnings really seriously. You are in a very dangerous place. Even now, you're being consumed by your anger. The God who made you is not only perfectly loving, he is, he's also perfectly knowledgeable. And so in his perfect knowledge of what everyone has done, his perfect knowledge of the future and the past, that also means that his anger is perfect. But in my anger, that is so often consumed with my own ego, an anger that so often thinks that my personal desires are the same thing as cosmic justice, in that kind of anger, we are standing in very serious danger. We need to let go of our anger and our envy and our bitterness. We need to trust God to avenge whatever wrongs we have faced, to let his King Jesus be in charge of our life and our future. But others of us here this morning are hearing this, and we're getting really worried. Sometimes Jesus' teachings can be really scary. You might hear this and you say, well, of course I know that I'm really angry. Of course I know that I have problems with jealousy and bitterness and hurt and frustration. Uh, it's starting to sound like God's really mad at me, that God cannot love me, that God cannot accept me. And so one of the things I want to say to you, if that's you this morning, you're hearing this and this is starting to really scare you and make you wonder if God loves you, 
Uh, one thing I want to say to you is that the fact that you're concerned about the warnings is actually a good sign that they are not really for you, if that makes sense. The fact that you're worried about them, that they are convicting you, is actually a really good sign. The warnings are meant to humble us. They are meant to undercut our self-sufficiency. They are meant to smash through the echo chamber that we like to build around ourselves. And so if that's happening to you this morning when you're hearing Jesus give you these sober warnings, praise the Lord. That's a great thing because that humility, that letting God break down the echo chamber of your life, that humility, Jesus already told us, is one of the first things that God loves to bless. God loves to bless the poor in spirit, the weak, the failing, the struggling, people who recognize their bankruptcy before God and other people. Jesus said, you're blessed. That was the first group of people Jesus said are blessed. That's a good place to be in. Jesus also said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember, that means that you're hungry for something you don't have. You're not sufficient. You're lacking. You see how much your emotional life, how much your relationships fall short of what God wants. And so Jesus again says to you, you're in a good place. That's where God's blessing is. Jesus also said there at the beginning of the sermon, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. The first step in dealing with conflict, what makes you actually able to do all of these crazy things that Jesus is talking about is this kind of humility, this kind of poverty of spirit. That's how you can actually find the strength and the motivation to show mercy to people who don't deserve it. It's good to be humbled. It's good to be sobered by these warnings because in doing so, Jesus is trying to drive all of us back. Whether you're already a Christian or you're not yet a Christian, Jesus is trying to drive us back to the blessings of the Father who loves to help and strengthen the weak and the weary. We can only truly begin to deal with our anger insofar as we're also learning to joyfully rest in the blessings of the Father. Let's pray. Father, how seriously we need uh, to change how quick we are to make excuses about our anger and the ways that we uh, avoid other people, the ways that our relationships have broken down, the ways that we put on shows and play games with everybody around us. But you see everything. Uh, everything is laid bare before you. You know what's really going on in our hearts. You know how angry we are. You know how bitter and frustrated we are. And so we need you once again to break through to us and to help us. Not just to, to beat us over the head with warnings about hell, but most of all, uh, to see that you want to bless needy people, that you want to bless weak and weary people who are uh, at a dead end of struggling in their own power against anger. Father, help us. We need your help so badly. Help us to see in Jesus our true friend, our true brother, our true help. For we ask it in his name. Amen.